Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. If anyone thinks about medieval Flanders today, it's most likely because they have an interest in the history of art. The work of painters like Bruegel and Rubens is still a touchstone for modern critics. But Flanders also pioneered the art of class warfare. There was nowhere else in Europe during the Middle Ages where the popular classes posed such an effective challenge to aristocratic power. At its high point during the early 14th century, this wave of popular mobilisation defeated some of Europe's most powerful armies. Jan de Malijn is a professor of history at Ghent University. I spoke to him about the social conditions that made Flanders into the epicentre of class conflict for medieval Europe. What made Flanders distinctive in terms of its social and economic structure in the wider context of medieval Europe? To avoid um, uh, any confusion, first of all, we should um, be clear on the geographical terms. What we call Flanders in the Middle Ages is the county of Flanders, and that is just one part of a broader geographical area you could call the Low Countries. It's the county of Flanders, but also later you would have the county of Brabant, and also the northern Low Countries, or Netherlands, or northern Netherlands, with the county of Holland and Zealand, etc., in this broader region, which could be considered a kind of um, socio-economic area in medieval Europe, Flanders is just the earliest developed part. The low countries in general are a kind of lowly situated, as the, the name goes, of course, delta area with several great uh, rivers uh, flowing into this flatlands. So the Rhine, the Meuse, the Scheldt, and they are situated, if you will, at the, the crossroads of northwestern Europe between what we would today call France, uh, Germany, then, of course, the Holy Roman Empire and uh, the British Isles. Very well connected as well to the North Sea area, the North Sea economy. And what is quite distinctive about especially Flanders, the northern coastal area, which is today part of Belgium, is that this was a very undeveloped, swampy, moorland kind of poorly uh, developed area with not as much, um, well, the north of it, at least the the, the coastal Flanders, eh? land that was um, not fertile and only good for sheep breeding. The southern parts, uh, which are today in northern France and the French-speaking parts, was more a fertile ground for agriculture. But the economic miracle of medieval Flanders, which you have to situate between the 10th and the 13th century, is um, uh, an area of very rapid economic growth, a population that is multiplied by four in these three centuries, whereas in other parts of Europe, the estimates are that the population also grows between this uh, phase of pre-industrial economic and demographic growth, let's say between 950 and and, and 1280. In other parts of Europe, the population uh, increases threefold. In Flanders, this will be fourfold. Quite specific is that 
as a result of this um, economic and demographic growth, uh, especially in Flanders, the urbanization rates will be extremely high. By 1300, it can be estimated that um, between 30 and 40% of the population lived in a town. And the only other regions comparable to that um, degree of urbanization in medieval Europe are northern and central Italy, that is to say Lombardy and Tuscany. So in standard economic histories of medieval Europe, it is common to uh, compare Flanders uh, and uh, northern and central Italy. They are um, early developed urbanized regions with a lot of economic growth for that period and also a high degree of what we might call industrialization. Of course, this is the artisan industries we are talking about. And in Flanders, the main engine of economic growth, apart from agricultural productivity, which is in in, in any pre-industrial, pre-capitalist social formation, agricultural production, agricultural productivity will be the main engine of growth. But in Flanders, specifically in the towns, there's a second economic uh, motor, if you will, and that is the textile industry. That is to say, the cloth industry producing woolen cloths, which were exported to other parts of Europe and even beyond Europe to the Islamic world, to um, the Slavic world, or what is uh, Russia at that time, uh, Scandinavia. You have these Flemish cloth which is of a high quality, usually the one produced for export. And this assures a kind of trade balance um, in which Flanders is able to export this, this uh, manufactured cloth. And the county can also import a lot of not only luxury products, but also foodstuffs to feed the, the people. So people who are not growing their own food anymore, this percentage of them becomes very high for a pre-industrial economy. In terms of this panorama that you sketched out of medieval Flanders with an unusually large urban population, what were the main social classes that we can identify in the Flemish towns and how did they organise themselves in order to defend and advance their collective interests? You see the distinctive urban social classes uh, arising already in the 10th, 11th century. By the 12th century, it is clear that there are kind of urban communes, um, that um, there are popular assemblies of townsmen, and that means at that time merchants and artisans, owners of the urban lands. And these towns around 1100, say, were, uh, let's say, 2,000, 5,000 population maximum. And they formed what you call the the, the communal movement. Internal class differences, the gap between the rich and the poor within the city itself was not as as outspoken as it would be by 1300. In the two centuries that followed, in the 12th and and 13th century, you have this um, steep increase of the population in the cities, often multiplying, uh, if I had said that the the general population multiplies by, by, by four, or by three in other regions, um, population of the cities will multiply by by seven or eight or ten. And also, um, as the 
economic growth continues and accumulation of capital, of, of merchant capital, which is invested in the artisanal sectors like the, the cloth industry, there is economic growth, but also a growing gap between the upper class, which is then the merchant class and the landowner class. This, 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 these are the same people. Um, in older and traditional historiography, they are referred to as the patricians, the patricians, but that's an anachronistic name taken from, from, from Roman history. So by the year 1280 about, you have this um, very small group of, of, of landowner merchants who do not directly control the production process in the cloth industry. They they buy the the raw materials, they sell them to the producers, and they buy up the finished uh, products. But they have the power over the, the producers um, in reality uh, because of credit relations or uh, because and also because they monopolize the, the political powers. There's about five percent of the of the population, these so-called patricians or the merchant class, which completely dominates political power in the cities. And then the artisan class, which is also not one unified class because there are master artisans, there are richer artisans, there are also um, the journeymen who are wage workers. There are the apprentices who owe almost nothing. There's also the gender difference. So it's a kind of fragmented social group, the artisans, but they are the producers. And there's a growing opposition between this merchant class and the producing class. And already in the 1225, 1245, the first labor strike movements start. The first labor strikes in medieval Europe are in fact situated in, in Flanders. And then in the 1280s, there's a generalized wave of, of first revolts that starts in which artisans also want to be represented in the urban governments. They want to choose their own guild leaderships, craft guilds, which have until then been strictly forbidden by the merchant class who ruled the town, are now trying to be autonomously organized and also to share in, 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 in the power, in the political power uh, of the city. So that's a kind of middle class, which will be the the main agents in these social revolts uh, and these collective actions, popular politics that will shape the history of these towns for the, for the next uh, three centuries. But of course, in every city and town, there's also a kind of low underclass proletariat of recent immigrants who don't have burger rights, whom today would be called illegal aliens, but who are also a cheap workforce, of course. They are unskilled laborers and they are not organized within craft guilds. And they might well make up 20 or 30 percent of the population of these large medieval towns, although their numbers are difficult to estimate because they are not represented in the in the sources. When we calculate the population of these towns, like for instance, in, in the middle of the 14th century, Ghent had about 65,000 inhabitants, Bruch about 45,000. These are only the people with official burger rights. You can add to that another layer, uh, in fact, just like today, of course, of people uh, without political rights, without um, and who, who who work as a, as a very cheap labor force. So it would be about three main classes. Uh, I would distinguish the upper class, the merchant class, then the the the, the small 
or petty commodity producers who often have their own means of productions uh, and they possess their own means of production, but they are um, completely dependent on merchant capital and under them these uh, unskilled wage laborers in which the female gender is overrepresented. That would be the, the, the main partition of um, urban society around the 1300s. How would you summarize the events of the two main uprisings that took place in 14th century Flanders? And what were the long-term results of those uprisings? So I was talking about the 1280s, around 1280, there's this first wave of revolts that fails. The artisan class does not achieve its its goals. and They are not represented yet in the town governments. But then there's the revolutionary wave around 1302. This 1302 is still commemorated today as 11 July 1302. That is a battle in which the Flemish urban militias, mostly the militia of Bruges, defeats the French chivalric army, at that point the strongest military force of Europe. And you might call this even a kind of political revolution in 1302 in the large cities in Bruges, in Ghent, but also in Liège. I haven't talked about Liège this, uh, until now. This is part of what is today called uh, Wallonia, the French-speaking part of, 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 of Belgium. But this is the Meuse area. It's a, a, a prince-bishopric, uh, so a principality in which the, the bishop also has the political power. And these are also important towns. They also have a metal and an arms industry, in fact, by the way, which is still the case today. And also in Liège and in other great towns, but also in Utrecht, which is today situated in the Kingdom of the Netherlands, so the northern low countries today, what most English speakers would call Holland, but that's only a pars pro toto, it's the larger Netherlands. In many of these great cities, the artisans take power. They share power now, the benches of older men or the burgomasters or whatever these rulers, town governors are called, a certain percentage of the seats in government goes to representatives of the craft guilds. And that is, in fact, the main result of this, of this rising of around 1302. And then what you see is, uh, in various places, there's a continuous class struggle between the merchant capitalists who do not want to share power with the artisan class and the artisans who try to take their part of power or maintain it. So there's another long revolt is 1323-1328. And there another element is added to the complexity of the situation that is peasants also start to join in. And peasants, especially in, in the coastal areas of Flanders, were free peasants, they were not serfs, they had their own village organizations, and they also had some political consciousness, they show, and they join with the artisan classes in in, in the towns. And that's a a very long-standing revolt, 1323-28. Many people who have some knowledge of medieval history always talk about the, the peasant revolt in England in 1381, But that is, in fact, much less important than the Flemish Maritime Revolt, which is uh, broader and takes uh, a longer period. Also the French Jacquerie. So, in fact, also this peasant revolt adds a new element to the general class struggle in medieval Flanders. 
And then there's another period between 1338 and 1345. Uh, there's a regime of James of Artevelde. This is against patrician who forms a coalition between uh, parts of the upper classes and the textile workers and the king of England because he needs the wool, the English wool, as a, as a, a, a necessary um, raw material for the Flemish textile industry. And by that time, of course, there is the Hundred Years' War. Uh, England starts the war with France uh, and Flanders also becomes involved in that geopolitical situation. There are several more waves of revolts in 1359, 61, 1379, 85. And this continues in the Burgundian period. From the end of the 14th century, the Burgundian dukes start to unify the Netherlands. They become Count of Flanders, uh, Duke of Brabant, Duke of Hainaut, Duke of Luxembourg, Count of Holland, etc. And you get what uh, a kind of state formation that forms the basis for the countries that are today, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. So what you have is during those two and a half centuries, in fact, until the middle of the, of the 16th century, when the Burgundian dynasty has already been succeeded by the Habsburg dynasty, you have Charles V uh, ruling uh, half of the world, as it were, uh, and the Netherlands are in that. And in these two and a half centuries, Every 20, 30 years, there's a major wave of, of revolts in which many towns uh, participate. Apart from smaller regime changes, coups, smaller struggles in, in, in specific towns. So, in fact, this is a generalized climate of political, social struggle, of, of popular politics in these cities, which cannot be easily summarized. It's a, a complex picture, but... It usually opposes the merchant class and the artisan class or sometimes united fronts of, of, of different factions of these classes in fighting or forming alliances with each other against other parties. And this makes for a very interesting and lively political history of the later Middle Ages. How did the political and economic situation change in Flanders from the second half of the 14th century onwards? Well, the great game changer in the middle of the 14th century, obviously, uh, is the Black Death. And so the population decreases by uh, 25%. The Black Death in the Netherlands has a, a great impact, but it's not as bad as it was in, in Italy. So it seems with all the research we know of. No. But that means that, of course, that. When the workforce diminishes, and of course, normally the wages should go up, but just as happens in England, where you have, um, after the Black Death, the Statute of Laborers, which forbids wages to increase, in Flanders as well, you have these struggles now. And so there are less people, their work is needed. Also on the countryside, in fact, where many peasants have died and uh, so the, the, the lease uh, that they have to pay to the landowner uh, has to be lowered because the landowners need peasants to till their lands. Uh, the, the merchants need uh, artisans for their in investments, but they don't want to pay higher wages or they don't want to decrease rents. Uh, so the struggles are usually about that uh, in this period. 
At the same time, there are structural reconversions in the artisanal industries. The classic Flemish cloth production is now facing ever more competition from other producing regions. First of all, England. England, who used to just sell the wool to Flanders and buy up the the finished products. So you might say in the 12th, 13th century, England is like a third world country to the industrialized Flanders. But, uh, of course, the English, and especially also the king, starts to realize that he wants to change that situation. And the English start producing their own cloths and regulate the export of their wool and forbid the import of Flemish cloths. So England becomes a competitor. So does, uh, so do the Tuscan cities, who also start to produce more cloths. And another important change in the 14th century is that transport becomes much more unsafe. Because of this 100-year war, the risks, if you you send a ship with finished products overseas, um, let alone over land, increase. So transport costs are higher and you have much more risk to lose your entire ship cargo. And so then the answer of, of, of the Flemish industry is to specialize, especially in very uh, high quality cloths and also other durable consumption products as of course if you transport something which is a high quality production you can make more profits per volume if you ship them because if you lose one ship of high quality cloth of course you will have lost a lot but the transportation costs will be relatively lower than for cheap cloths in terms of purely economic logic other places, like Bruges, for instance, their cloth production goes down and artisans start specializing in luxury items, goldsmith work, weapons, um, confection. Uh, the, the fashion business uh, is booming in that period, but also what we could would call art today. Yeah? The Flemish masters, the Northern Renaissance, uh, painters like Jan van Eyck, Rohir van der Weyden, Hans Memling, and then that goes on in, in, in the 16th and 17th century with Peter Breughel, uh, uh, Anthony van Dijk, uh, Rubens, etc. It is not a coincidence that these great painters and, and Renaissance artists, or later medieval artists, are to be found in the great Flemish and, and Rabatine towns. This has to do with these economic reconversions. At the same time, this also implies that the most revolutionary class in the 14th century, who were the textile workers, the weavers, the fullers, the shearers, they diminish as a relative percentage of the town population. If in a town like Ypres or Ghent or Bruges, textile workers in in, in around 1300 would make up 30 or 40, perhaps even 50% of the population in the 15th century, when the Dukes of Burgundy rule, when, when Jan van Eyck lives in Bruges in 1430, 1440, these textile workers would only make up uh, 15, maximum 20% of the population. And that also means that the, the workforce become, becomes less radical. Eh? And, and these textile workers, they still start their own um, revolts for higher wages, for better positions w- within um, the, the urban government. But these revolts become less and less successful. 
And at the same time, the power of what you might call the state, the princely state or the feudal state at that time, uh, the state of the Burgundian dukes, for instance, they amass more taxes, they have more income, they have uh, stronger armies, and they um, can more easily crush these um, popular movements in, in, in the towns of the of the southern low countries. So in general, the balance of power becomes more unfavorable for the small commodity producers um, in the 15th century and more favorable for merchant capital and for the nobility who profits from the rise of the dynastic states. And so that will be the beginning of the end also of guild power in the city. By the middle of the of the 16th century, these craft guild representatives are thrown out of the urban government almost uh, uh, everywhere in the low countries. Then the next episode will start, and that is the Reformation. And then the religious elements starts intermingling with the social contradictions. But that's no longer my speciality, I'm afraid. So. I understand that you said this is not your specialist period, but even so, would you say we can trace any lines of continuity that reach between this period and the Dutch revolt against Habsburg rule that developed in the second half of the 16th century? Well, you can, you can. There are new elements, and the new element, of course, is is, the, is this Protestantism, is a Reformation, uh, but the Dutch revolt... Uh, is a long series of events, but what is often considered its first event is, is the iconoclasm eh, in 1566. Eh, and the iconoclasts, so the people who, who want to destroy the, 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 the statues of, 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 of the saints and, 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 and the virgin, because, of, of course, as the Calvinists' uh, doctrine had it, uh, you couldn't depict them, eh, only God. Eh. These people are the, the, these radical some of them, at least, not in every city. Yeah? In the towns of Steenvoorde, for instance, eh? these are towns in the south of Flanders, in what is today France, French-speaking Flanders, eh? in which um, rural textile production centers have been have been blossoming since the, the, the late uh, 15th century, early 16th century. Eh? What happens is, and what I haven't uh, talked about yet, is that a lot of this textile industry moves from the town to the the countryside, and it is exactly these rural cloth workers who will be the most radical Calvinist rebels, destroying, breaking down the the, the, the statues and the, and the, and the, the paintings, uh, destroying the paintings in in these churches in 1566 and converting into Protestantism. So they are partly also building on uh, an older tradition of class struggle, of political struggle which went back to the 13th century. There's also the the political idea, cherished also by many of the upper classes in the cities, that there should be a kind of political contract between the ruler, between the prince and his subjects, a kind of mutual understanding that the king or the count or the duke does not rule as what would be later called an absolute monarch, that there are the kind of representative bodies, the estates and estates general, in which also the, especially the merchant classes are represented, but also the, the, the lower nobility and some of the clergy. So 
part of the Dutch revolt is also that the towns and the, and the, the, the provinces of the, the low countries are no longer loyal to the Habsburg ruler at that point, the king of Spain, Philip II. So, yes, things change, but from the social, economic, and the political point of view, there is also a lot of continuity between this 16th century Dutch revolt and what is especially happening not in the northern Netherlands in that period in the Middle Ages, but especially in the in the southern Netherlands, where also Protestantism was stronger first. Today, the Netherlands, Holland, is the so-called Protestant country, and Belgium is a so-called Catholic country. In reality, uh, everybody has been secularized now for the last decades, but traditionally that was the idea. But in fact, Protestantism was first stronger in what is today Belgium. And many of these uh, rebels, uh, Calvinist rebels, they had to flee to the north, eh? and they were uh, a part of the success of the economic success of the of the Dutch Republic. Eh? Take a town like like Leiden, eh? which is a, a textile producing town in the 17th century in the Dutch Republic, but half of its workers came from the southern Low Countries, from contemporary Belgium. Eh? The capital, the merchant capital in Amsterdam, at the end of the 16th century, beginning of the 17th century. A lot of it comes from Antwerp, eh? which was the predecessor, so the, the successor of Bruges as an international port and the predecessor of Amsterdam. So, yes, the Dutch revolt does not come from nothing. It has a prehistory in Belgium eh? in the three centuries before. What implications would you say the Flemish experience has for the way that we think about Europe during the Middle Ages? Of course, it has long been discussed that Flanders, or the Low Countries, uh, more broadly, and on the other sides of the Alps, um, uh, Italy, uh, especially in northern and, and, and central Italy, are s- specific regions uh, within medieval Europe. But I think they have mostly been considered as um, specific for their, for their traits, uh, for their commerce, and also for their arts, uh, so the, 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 Renaissance, the Renaissance in Italy and, and, and the Northern Renaissance. But I think more attention should be given to these internal class relations and to the development of a self-conscious artisan class uh, who are small producers or wage workers who, especially after the, the, the Black Death can have higher standards of living. Yeah? They they will have more furniture in their house. They are often also lettered. Eh? People, they know how to read or write write their name, for instance. Eh? The, the majority of, of artisans could read and write to some degree. Yeah? That is also something that is uh, often, often forgotten. So there's a kind of, we would could today call it a middle class, but let's call it the the the, the small producers and and the, and the the organized wage workers, the guildsmen, women as well, but they are more difficult to discern in in, in the sources. Who are politically conscious, eh, who have their own ideas about society, eh, who want to join in government, eh, who are conscious about their role, and they are not just subjects. Eh? The idea that um, the Middle Ages is just uh, an area of kings and counts and barons and the Pope and bishops eh? and the mass of the population is are, are, are like peasants who are uh, either completely silent 
or when they revolt, it's a kind of uncontrollable, spontaneous rage, and there's no clear political program. They don't really know what they want. They just want to burn down the castle and loot everything, for instance. That kind of idea, which you find in the medieval chronicles. And by the way, you can find that kind of discourse also in the contemporary press when they report on, on collective actions today, of course. But that is not the case. There, there is a, a layer of the population who knows what they want, and they are they want to participate in politics. And that is long, uh, it's, it's 500 years before um, the, the growth of, 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 the, of the modern industrial proletariat. And I think that is something which is far more important than, than, than is usually considered in scholarly literature or in the popular images we get from the, of the medieval periods until now. Many thanks to Jan Dommelein for that introduction to class struggle in medieval Flanders. You can also read his article about the history of Flanders on the Jacobin website. <laughs>